Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. So we are in the third week of four looking at a book called Ruth which is in the Old Testament. It's a short book, four chapters. Um, if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, do check out the talks online. Tim kicked us off two weeks ago, Joe Wells last week. And you may find it helpful, actually, before we get to the fourth chapter, just to take some time to read the book. If you read it as a story rather than just a chunk here each week, um, we've, I think you'll get the real feel of it better. It takes about 20 minutes to read it. Uh, you may want to do that this week. But just if you missed the previous talks, let me give you a bit of a recap. So we're in chapter 3. The story begins, actually the background to the story, is that there is this couple named Naomi and Elimelech, who are Israelites, who moved out of Bethlehem to the land of Moab during a time of famine. And their two sons married Moabite women named Ruth and Orpah. And then tragically, Elimelech and his two sons all died, leaving Naomi with her daughters-in-law. And no real uh, hope, no family, no company, no sort of prospects for the future. And Naomi had no choice but to return to Israel. And she realized she had nothing to offer to her daughters-in-law and said to them, don't worry about me. Uh, Don't feel the need to fulfill your legal obligations towards me. Um, Go, find a hope and a future for yourself. But Ruth refuses and makes this pledge of loyalty to Naomi in which she says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. So Ruth accompanies Naomi back to Israel and they find this field, which it says in chapter two, just happened to belong to um, a character called Boaz who is related to Naomi and Elimelech. And so Ruth goes to glean in that field, that is to follow behind the harvesters and to pick up what is left behind. And Boaz spots Ruth and, uh, and hears about the kindness that she has shown to Naomi and so says to her, essentially, um, because you were so kind to your mother-in-law, may the Lord bless you richly. So if you want to know the blessing of God, be kind to your mother-in-law. Is a little free tip for you today, which I learned the hard way. No, I didn't. No. <laughs> My mother-in-law is great and she listens to our podcast. So uh, she plays like the blessing of God on you because of the kindness you've shown. And then Boaz um, actually invites her to the table and blesses her richly. And then we come to chapter three, the meeting of Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. And this, actually, as I talked to people and told them they were doing the book, uh, we were doing the book of Ruth, people knew the story of chapter three more than the rest of the book. Uh, So maybe that's you, I don't know. Um, As Tim pointed out in chapter one, I think many people get off on the wrong footing with the book of Ruth by misinterpreting what kind of book it is. Um, Tim said that many people preach this as if it's a Cinderella story, it's a love story, it's a romance. And if that's how you think we're meant to approach the book of Ruth, then chapter two is the moment that kind of the lovers lock eyes over a field and chapter three is their first date. So I have sat through sermons, and I've talked to others uh, who have done the same. We've sat through sermons on dating tips from Ruth chapter three. If that's what you're after today, you're going to be sorely disappointed. I mean, come and see me at the end. I've got plenty of wisdom to share. Um, (laughs) uh, Just so you know, Helen and I didn't get together like they do in this passage. Uh, And if you're looking for dating tips from this passage, you're going to do some pretty weird dating. So that's not what this passage is about. This is not a Cinderella story. It is not a love story, but it is a story about love. And Ruth is a story about a particular type of love that has the potential to change the world. A couple of months ago, the German stationery company Stabilo launched um, quite um, a worldwide campaign, particularly through social media, called Highlight the Remarkable 
And what they did was they took scenes of male-dominated scenes and they highlighted the women who had been upstaged and whose successes had not been fully recognized. Uh, for example, there is Edith Wilson, who was the first lady who assumed her husband's presidential responsibilities after he was paralyzed by a stroke. Next one, uh, Lisa Meitner, um, who discovered nuclear fission, but whose male partner got the credit and was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for it, Nobel Prize, rather. Uh, then Catherine Johnson, um, who, if you've seen the film Hidden Figures, uh, which I watched this week, a brilliant film, uh, she's featured in that. She's the NASA mathematician responsible for the calculations that brought Apollo 11 safely back to the Earth. And what I like about these is that they're a very simple campaign that, of course, could be replicated many thousands of times throughout history. But they've taken these scenes and highlighted the women who have made significant contributions to changing the course of history, often making huge sacrifice and facing discrimination in the process. And what I particularly like about this campaign is it helps me to understand something about the Book of Ruth. Someone asked me a few weeks ago, why is the Book of Ruth in the Bible? And if you think it's just a love story, if you think it's a Cinderella story, that's a good question to ask. But I think one of the reasons that the book of Ruth is in the Bible is because, like this campaign, God has taken a big fat highlighter to the pages of history and said, here is a woman who is worthy of your attention and imitation and study for all people at all times. So I include her in my best-selling book. God has taken a highlighter to the pages of history to draw out this one particular woman who fights against challenges in her patriarchal culture of her day in order to bring about some change through history. Ruth is one of the very few ancient documents, as Tim said in, part, in chapter one of this series, that gives prominence to a strong female lead and portrays her struggles to thrive within the patriarchal culture of her day. And God has kept this story here because he thinks it is important for men and women throughout all of history to read this, study this, learn from this, and imitate it. Because Ruth embodies something of the kind of love that has the potential to change the world. So Ruth is not a simple love story like a romance, but it is a story about love. And it's a story about committing ourselves to a way of love and a quality of love that has the potential to change all of history. And that kind of love is known by the Hebrew word hesed. Now, I was talking to someone the other day who was like, I've heard this word hesed so many dozens of times and we're only two weeks into the series. I make no apologies for using the word hesed a lot because you will not understand the book of Ruth unless you understand the kind of love it is talking about. Carolyn Custis James, who wrote a brilliant book, The Gospel of Ruth, which has really helped all the preachers I know in, in grappling with this book in preparation for the series. She describes hesed like this. She says it is no ordinary kind of love. It is a loyal, self-giving, costly love that motivates a person to do voluntarily what no one has a right to expect or ask of them. It shows what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Hesed is a self-sacrificial love which is so pure and so beautiful that it elicits that same response in others. The book of Ruth is a story of hesed love. It is saturated with hesed. And what I hope to show you today, this sort of message in a, in a nutshell, is that God intends to change the world through men and women who bear his image and are committed to hesed love. That's this talk in a nutshell. So if, if you zone out now, you've got the talk, but I've sort of made my point, but I'm going to carry on making it for another half an hour. But like, this is the point. God has always intended to change the world through men and women who are made in his image and committed to hesed love. So let's begin looking at the passage, starting at Ruth 3, verse 1. 
One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now, at this point, the story has moved on seven weeks from chapter two. This is now after the harvest of the barley and wheat. And Naomi tells Ruth to to wash, put on her best clothes, anoint herself with perfume, and then go to Boaz, where he'll be sleeping in amongst the grain. And if you read Ruth like a Cinderella story, then this is like Naomi being the matchmaker, telling Ruth to make herself irresistible and go and seduce this wealthy landowner. And sure, if you read chapter three in isolation, I can see how you can get there. But remember everything that has come before, everything we know about these characters. Remember what happened in chapter 1. Naomi said, you are free from your legal obligations to me. Don't worry about me. Go and find a hope and a future for yourself. Naomi showed a sacrificial love towards Ruth. That is exactly what's going on here. Naomi is not saying, make yourself irresistible, go and seduce this guy, and then we'll both be fine. That is not what is happening. Rather, Naomi is saying, Anoint yourself, dress yourself in fine clothes in order to say my season of widowhood is past. I am no longer identifying myself by my past and my relationship to Naomi. I am ready to embark on something new that a God has got for me. And Naomi is releasing Ruth saying, I want to find a hope and a future for you. Go, don't worry about me. So Ruth goes towards Boaz, uh, essentially with this proposal of marriage. And what Naomi is asking you to do is controversial. It is risky because it goes against the, conversion, uh, the, the conventions of the day. In this day, a woman would never propose to a man. A younger person would never propose to an older person. A poor field worker would never propose to a rich landowner. And yet Naomi is taking a chance that Hesed will win out. That Naomi will act in such a way that it elicits a loving, self-sacrificial response from Boaz. And what we see is that Hesed does win out in this passage. We see Hesed in two forms, beginning with the Hesed of Ruth, verse 5. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down by the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet, which would startle you. Um, (laughs) Who are you, he asked rightly. Uh, I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Let's just pause there for a second. So Ruth says to Naomi, I will do exactly what you tell me to do. And she does, until the last sentence. <laughs> so she does exactly what Naomi says. She goes and she says, lay the cover, the, the, the corner of your garment over me, which is an ancient ritual um, associated to marriage. Actually, it still is in many parts of the world today. Essentially, she's saying, I'm, I'm ready for marriage. I'm open for marriage. She's proposing. But then she goes one step further. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family or a kinsman redeemer. Now, Naomi didn't tell her to say that. Why did she say that? Well, in order to understand this, I need to give you a kind of Brief history of Jewish law. Don't worry, it's only been 90 seconds, so don't zone out. Um, when the people of God came into the promised land, the land was divided up between the families. And family and land mattered so much that paramount in people's minds as they were thinking about handing stuff on to their next generation were two issues, lineage and land. The survival of the family name and keeping the land in the family. 
And so God instituted two laws that would protect lineage and land. The first is called the Leveret Law. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 25. And this addressed the problem of lineage. If a man died without an heir, so says the Leveret Law, then under Leveret Law, a brother would have to then marry the widow, provide her with a child, and thus keep the family name alive. And great shame and dishonor would come upon any brother who refused to abide by this law. That was the first law. The second was known as the kinsman redeemer or the guardian redeemer law. And that addressed the problem of land. If someone fell in hard times, maybe there was famine or uh, debt or, or something like that, and they had to sell their land, then the nearest relative, didn't have to be a brother, the nearest relative would buy back the land at expense to themselves so that it could stay in the family. And these were the two provisions that God put in place to keep lineage and land in the family. And both are costly. Because if you were to enact one of these laws, it would be sacrificial. But that's the Hesed way of doing things. And Hesed is costly. So, for example, if my brother died, um, I would stand to earn more of my father's estate because there'd be fewer siblings to divide it between. But if I chose to give his widow a child, then actually they would inherit the portion that I could have had. So it's costly to me to do this. Similarly, if I were to spend my money to buy back some land so that my brother's family could carry on using it, I would be giving up some of my money and my family would suffer because they would have less for me to pass on to them. Do you see? So both laws are costly, but that is the Hesed way of doing it. Now, why is this relevant? Well, Elimelech and his family had run into trouble on both counts of lineage and land. Famine had driven Elimelech and his family from, uh, from Bethlehem, and their two sons had died without heirs. So it seemed like their family was on the brink of extinction. So Ruth comes to Boaz, as Naomi suggested, and Naomi's plan seems to be that Ruth will marry Boaz and save herself. But Ruth isn't happy with that because she has already promised to Naomi, don't, depart me, don't urge me to depart from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. So Ruth has said, I am going to enter into your way of doing things under your God. I am going to start living by Hesed. And so she refuses just to rescue herself, and she launches this daring rescue plan, not only for herself, not only even for Naomi, but for the whole Elimelech line. And basically what she does is she takes these two laws and she weaves them together. I'm going to have the next slide up. She takes the Leveret law and the Kinsman Redeemer law, and she blends them together. She says to Boaz, would you take me as your wife, invoking this law, but also says, since you are also my Kinsman Redeemer. And so she weaves these two laws together in a way that had never been done in history until that point, as far as we can tell. There is no legal precedent for this. And yet Ruth binds them together in a daring, courageous move. Now, some people say Ruth didn't really understand what she was doing when she did this because her appeal to these two laws is a little bit tenuous. Boaz wasn't a brother and so had no legal obligation to fulfill the Leveret law. And even though he was related to them, he wasn't the nearest relative. There was another one, and we'll see how that works out next week in chapter 4. But Ruth appeals to these two laws because she is looking beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. And she knows that the spirit is hesed. And some people say Ruth didn't understand what was going on. Maybe she made a mistake. No, I think Ruth understood these laws better than anyone else in Israel at that day. She, an outsider from Moab, had looked on and understood that God is the God who works through Hesed and has instituted these laws in order to bring people to a deep level of sacrificial love. And so she takes a chance that I'm going to invoke these two laws in the hope that it elicits a Hesed response from Boaz. Are you with me? 
That's the technical bit done. You can zone back in. <laughs> and Boaz responds, and it's beautiful. Here we see the hesed of Boaz. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness, the kindness she's showing to him is greater than that which she showed earlier, referring to the kindness shown to Naomi. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. So this response from Boaz is remarkable. Because this is a guy living in a culture where men had all the cards of power. He had power, he had wealth, he had land, he had status, he had a reputation. He had no legal obligation at all to fulfill the lever at marriage law. That was, like, he wasn't even close to having any obligation there. He also had no obligation to fulfill the kinsman redeemer law. By his culture's standards, complying to Ruth's request would have been an insane thing to do. Because he lived in a culture where people devalued women and the only value women had was seen by their relationship to men in marriage and their having children. It would have been insane for Boaz, by his culture standards, to buy back this land at great expense to himself and to enter into marriage with a woman who has already been unable to bear children. Essentially, Boaz, by doing this, would have given up great wealth and run the risk of his own family line becoming extinct. But he does it. Why? Because he recognizes there is something about the spirit of Ruth that he cannot ignore. There is something about her and her hesed love that is calling out to him and demanding a deeper level of faith and holiness than he has been living in up to now. He spots something of the hesed and it affects him. Carolyn Custis James calls this an epidemic of hesed. It's like the love of God has got into this Moabite woman, spread throughout a poor family and right throughout a town. And now he gets swept up in this epidemic and it changes him. So in a culture where men held all the cards of power, Boaz isn't threatened by Ruth, this woman coming to him with an idea. He doesn't respond with a bruised male ego. In this culture where status was everything, he's not threatened by this poor field worker coming and challenging him as the rich landowner. Rather, he responds recognizing that there is something holy about this woman and what she is asking that is calling him to a deeper level of faith and character. We don't know why Boaz hadn't thought about doing this beforehand, why he didn't initiate it. Maybe he didn't think that the laws applied to him. Maybe he was scared or selfish or whatever. But in this moment where he spots something powerful and holy about what Ruth is doing, rather than just going, no, culturally, I'm in the place of power. No, thank you. He responds to her. He submits to her initiative and gets caught up in her plan to rescue this family. Why? Because he recognized there is a spirit in her that can't let me stay at superficial faith. It calls me to deeper levels of holiness. We also don't know why Boaz is unmarried. In this story, it seems like he doesn't have an heir of his own. So he doesn't consider this action just to be kindness towards Naomi or even to Elimelech's family, but kindness to him as well. It's like she is inviting him to be part of this great plan to change history. So he says this kindness is greater even than that which she showed earlier to Naomi because you've not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And then he says this, don't be afraid. 
I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. That word, noble character, is the Hebrew word ha'il. It's used one other time in the book of Ruth, and it's used in chapter 2, verse 1 of Boaz. It is a strong, honorific word. You couldn't call someone much that was greater than Hayil. If you called someone Hayil, you were talking about their worth, their excellence, their character, their strength. It was a military term. It meant a warrior, a mighty warrior. And when it's applied to Boaz, it's described as a man of valor. That's what he is described as. Yet he now turns it around and applies it to Ruth, the poor widow with no children from outside the people of God. He applies it to her. Why? Because he looks at her and he's like, you embody this way more than I do. And so he turns the cultural conventions on its head and speaks to her in a way that shows he is now seeing her and her potential like God does. He says, you are Hayil. You are a mighty woman. You are a woman of valor. And you're calling me to a deeper level of engagement with faith. In fact, these are not just the words of Boaz. It's not like he's just infatuated with her and so being a bit flattering. No, he says, everyone knows it. Like everyone throughout the town, anyone who has ever heard of you, Ruth, they may not even have met you, but if they've heard of you, they know you are a mighty woman. You are Hayil. You are known even at the city gates. It's like God has taken a big fat highlighter to this character of Ruth and said, she is Hayil. She embodies something of the spirit and love that has the potential to change this world. And whatever her society says about her, in her society, she was at the absolute lowest point. No power. God says, I see you as Hayil, and I want everyone to know it. In fact, this is beautiful. And Chris Oldfield pointed this out to me uh, this week. I mean, he's not even here in the service. I could have taken the credit for that, but there we go. <laughs> uh, Chris Oldfield pointed this out. I think it's beautiful. In the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament is arranged differently to how our Old Testament is arranged. In our version of the Old Testament, Ruth comes between Judges and 1 Samuel, which chronologically, that's exactly where it comes. But in the Hebrew Old Testament, it was arranged differently. It was arranged into three categories, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And in this arrangement, Ruth is part of the writings over here on, on the right-hand side. And it's part of what is known as the Scroll of the Five, five particular stories which begin and end with stories about high-yield women who stood up in their patriarchal culture and made a difference, uh, being caught up in God's plans to change the world. I think that's interesting, Ruth and Esther there. But look what comes before Ruth. It's the book of Proverbs. The final chapter of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, is known as a woman of noble character. A hayil woman is the Hebrew phrase. And in this section, it begins with this rhetorical question. A hayil woman, a, a, a mighty warrior woman, where can you find such a person? And then it, it describes what this woman is like. She has excellent character and strength, and she is respected by everyone. She is a brilliant businesswoman. She has an amazing mind. She is wonderful. And it ends by saying, her good deeds bring her praise at the city gates. So follow me. Proverbs 31. Where can you find a high-yield woman? Where do you look for a woman like that whose good deeds bring her praise at the city gates? You turn the page. It's Ruth, right? It's Ruth. It's not the person you expect. It's the impoverished widow childless woman from outside of the people of God, and she embodies Proverbs 31, and her hyalness is known where? At the city gates. God has arranged his scripture in order to take a big fat highlighter to the character of Ruth and say, there is something about her that I want my people for all time to read and study and imitate because she embodies the kind of spirit and love that is going to change the world. 
She embodies my hesed love. And God wants everyone to know it. Why does God champion Ruth like this? Well, I think it's because she embodies something that is so close to the heart of God. And when we see the hesed love of Ruth in this story, it should remind us of the hesed love of the God who inspired this story. The God under whose wings Ruth found shelter. You know, even though God isn't mentioned much in the book of Ruth, or Esther, in fact. In fact, I'm not even sure God's mentioned once in Esther. You can't help but see him just everywhere. You sense his smile every time Ruth takes a risk and it pays off. It's like he's looking at it going, come on, come on. (laughs) You are embodying something of me right now. And the reason God wants this story to be preserved and read and studied and imitated is because when we do that, we get close to being like God as we were designed to be. From the very beginning of Scripture, the very beginning of time, God created male and female with equal value, both made in the image of God. That is to, re- to reflect something of the character and nature of God. And we were created, male and female, with dignity and with purpose and with a task to do. That is to create and to cultivate and to use the talents and skills and gift and character God has imbued us with to bring God's hesed love to this world. That's what it means to carry the image of God. We were made to be image bearers through whom God would bless this world. You don't need me to tell you that this world has got off track from God's original plan. There is so much pain and suffering and injustice. There are so many systems and structures that oppress rather than bless There are so many examples, countless examples, of times where image bearers, male and female, have have been in competition rather than partnership. And systems and structures have fostered competition rather than honoring one another. And there are so many divisions in our culture on the basis of a whole load of things, like gender, race, class, a whole load of factors, where people who are called to image bear, to work together, have ended up working against one another. And the book of Ruth tells us that the answer is not just to go, well, I guess that's the way it is. (laughs) No, God highlights the story of a woman who wouldn't say, I guess that's just the way it is, but rather stood up to change things by embodying the kind of love that we see in God himself. It has always been God's intention from the very beginning to use a community of men and women made in God's image, committed to hesed love to change the world. That hasn't changed from Genesis on. I don't know how many of you saw uh, the video that went around on social media, I think last week, of Chris Pratt at the MTV Awards. Did anyone see that? Yeah. So Chris Pratt, this actor, um, uh, he received the Generation Award uh, at the MTV Awards, and he used this speech to speak, as he said, as the elder for the next generation. I give you my nine rules of living. And some of them were quite tongue-in-cheek. But rule three, well, actually all of them, just peppered throughout was this beautiful sense of God just calling people back to being the image bearers he's created, just telling people you have a dignity and a purpose that God has given you, live as God has intended. And rule three said this, don't be a turd. (laughs) which I like, (laughs) not just because it gives me an excuse to use the word turd in a sermon, but um, (laughs) don't be a turd. If you are strong, be a protector. If you are smart, be a humble influencer. Strength and intelligence can be weapons, so do not wield them against the weak. That makes you a bully. Be bigger than that. I think that's a message our generation needs to hear. It's a call to image bearing. It's a call to using the things God has put in you, not as weapons against the weak, but for their empowerment 
as an embodiment of love. You can almost imagine God there in the Garden of Eden, just bending down and making Adam and Eve out of the dust of the earth. And he breathes his spirit into them. And he commissions them. He said, Adam, Eve, don't be turds. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what the Hebrew says. So it's, <laughs> it's not. But Adam and Eve, like, I've made you in my image with dignity and purpose and power and character and gifts and influence. Don't use these things as weapons against the weak. Use the things that I have put into you as I use them to raise up and empower and bless. We were created as people who bear God's image to embody his Hesed love to a world that dearly needs to experience it. From day one, God has intended to change the world through men and women who bear his image and are committed to Hesed love. And the book of Ruth celebrates two such image bearers who work beautifully, not in competition with one another as their culture may have forced or encouraged them to, but in beautiful partnership as God intended them to. The story of Ruth tells us that God loves strong women who are unafraid to live out the call on their lives to reflect their creator. When Ruth takes a risk and dares to be way more bold than her culture would typically allow, confronting a wealthy, powerful male landowner with a call to costly, sacrificial love, to move beyond superficial faith to deep, holy, hesed faith, I reckon God is looking over that going, come on, yes, you show them, girl, come on. Because Ruth is reflecting something of his hesed love. And God calls her Hayil, a mighty woman of valor. And he wants everyone to know it and to emulate her. And this book also tells us that God loves it when men like Boaz respond well to women, not being threatened, having their male pride bruised a little bit, but valuing, empowering, championing women, responding to their initiative, submitting themselves to them and saying, I am going to get on board with this plan because I recognize you are calling me to a deeper level of holiness and engagement with God that is not superficial, but has the potential to change the world. I love that Boaz realized there was something so holy about Ruth that he had to change. It caused, it called this thing out of him, this costly hesed love, and he laid down his life for her. And you can bet that God is beaming all over this going, yes, you are seeing Ruth like I see her. And that is calling out exactly the kind of right response. It's hesed, it's my own heart. And God has highlighted these people, this man and this woman, for all of time and all of history. Why? Because I think they point to the ultimate embodiment of hesed, which is Jesus Christ. This story is a story about them, but it's also a story about who they represent, whose image they are made in. Jesus is the ultimate redeemer, the ultimate one, who can rescue lineage and land and everything in between. He is the ultimate guardian redeemer, the ultimate one made in the image of God, the literal embodiment of hesed in flesh. And he lived his life totally, totally lined up with the plan and the purposes of God. He never once became part of the problem. He didn't use his strength, all the resources of heaven at his disposal. He didn't use them to weaken or to diminish, but to empower and to release and to love and to bless. And he embodied Hesed all the way to the cross, where at the cross he gave up his life literally, laying it down for the world, paying the price 
for all the brokenness, all the division, all the sin, all the things we have done that have caused brokenness in the world. He took it all upon himself at the cross. That is the ultimate embodiment of Hesed. And the world will not ultimately be changed by us just loving well and doing good things. That's not my message at all. The world will ultimately be changed by Jesus and his death and resurrection. That is the means by which this world will be made new. But when we respond to his death and his offer of Hesed love, something of that love infects us. And then we become the people we were designed to be from day one embodying his love to a world that desperately needs to know it. As we experience his love, it transforms us to be agents of blessing and hesed love to this world. There's this beautiful moment in Ruth 2 where Boaz prays over Ruth and says, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then in chapter 3, Ruth comes to Boaz and says, Would you lay the corner of your garment over me? And literally, the Hebrew, it means wings. So Boaz says, may you be blessed under the wings of God. And Ruth comes, and that gets fulfilled when she finds blessing under the wings of Boaz. Now, hear me right. I'm not saying that Boaz becomes God or becomes the male that saves the woman. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is this. Ruth tells us that sometimes we can become the answer to our own prayers. In fact, I think that happens all the time. You know, it's one thing to pray for this world, expecting that God may intervene. But actually, when we learn to follow the way of Hesed, we actually become the answer to our prayers very often. You know, I so often pray, Lord, would you intervene in that situation? Lord, would you break in over there? Would you befriend my neighbor? Would you help that hurting person? Would you change the situation? I reckon God's like, would you do it? (laughs) Just don't be a turd. (laughs) Get on and do the thing that I created you to do because we were made to be the answer to those very prayers. Last week, if you were here, you would have heard Joe Wells, and maybe the band can come back up. Joe Wells shared a story of a lady named Kelly, um, whose story is recounted in Pete Gregg's brilliant book, Dirty Glory. I just finished reading it the other week. Absolutely fantastic book. And uh, Kelly has spent years now in Reynosa in Mexico uh, praying for Boys Town, which is this walled uh, zone of tolerance for legalized prostitution. And the reason that Joe told that story, which I'm not going to recount again now, but the reason she told it was because it's a brilliant example of Hesed love taking someone to a place that they didn't really want to go uh, to embody God's love there. What Joe didn't tell you last week, and if you know her, maybe you'll know this, but what she didn't tell you last week is that for a year, Joe's story and Kelly's story got to overlap because Joe went to be there with her for a year in Mexico. And the way this came about was beautiful, and, and uh, she's not here today, but I have her permission to tell the story. And, um, she first came across Kelly at a 24-7 prayer event here in London. So Kelly had been there by herself, no one else with her in Mexico for 15 months. She came over to a prayer gathering here, and Joe heard her telling this story. And something rose up in Joe. She's like, this is not right. This is not fair. And so she said, God, this is not good. Would you send a friend to be with her? <laughs> you see where I was going, right? think carefully before you pray (laughs) keep praying (laughs) so she prayed come on God this is not right would you send someone the next day she gets it's the international gathering and Pete Gregg stands up and said we're scrapping the program today we're not going ahead with the talk instead I want you all to gather around Kelly and we're going to pray we're going to pray for her but I want you also to pray Lord God do you want me to go to Mexico so however many people there all just praying for Kelly and Joe starts praying and she said suddenly she found herself crying and she's describing it to me in the office this week and she was like 
oh no, <laughs> maybe God's saying yes to that question. And she didn't know, so she went away and she prayed over the next couple of days. And the way she describes it, it wasn't like suddenly this lightning bolt from heaven and this call, like you must go to Mexico. But she started to think, why wouldn't I? I could do it. I could, I see this need, I prayed. Maybe I could be the answer to that need. And so for a year, she went to be with Kelly in this place serving and loving as Kelly was until there was a more permanent solution came its way. And what I love about that story is that Joe got caught up in a, an epidemic of Hesed. It started with this lady, Kelly, getting infected with the love of God, going and loving others. Then Joe sees this high ill woman, this warrior who's just praying all by herself in Mexico, and something about her just prays and then makes her think, oh, maybe I can become the answer to that prayer. Today, I want to invite you to join in following Ruth and Boaz and Kelly and Joe, and in particular, the one that all of those people point to, Jesus Christ, in committing yourself to Hesed love. And so in a moment, I'm going to ask us to stand. We're going to sing a song about God's love empowering us to be his love to this world, but I want to pray for us first. And I want to give you an opportunity to actively engage with this prayer. It's not just me saying words that you then agree with at the end. Agree with it in your heart. And say, Lord, I want this to be true of me. And as we pray this, it's a dangerous prayer. Because when we pray a prayer like this, we always run the risk that God may say, yeah, you'll be answered to this prayer. But I'm going to pray that God's Hesed love breaks out in us and through us to this city. Why don't we stand? <clears throat> There'll be a chance for a particular prayer if you would like it at the end. Our prayer team would love to pray with you, I'm sure. But right now, just close your eyes. Lord Jesus, I pray that this city would experience a great outpouring of your Hesed love that draws men and women back into relationship with you and back into being the image bearers you created them to be. Where our culture is full of attitudes and practices that create pain, division, and injustice and disempowerment, would you bring healing and freedom and restoration? And I pray that you would start here. I pray that this would be a community of women and men who are modeling healthy partnership in love. Not in competition, but love. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Jesus, out of love for him. And I pray that we would model that. I pray we'd be a community made in your image that respect, encourage, empower, and submit to one another. And as we learn to lay down our lives for each other in Hesed love, would you start an epidemic that sweeps across our city? And would you show us how you can use us as answers to our own prayers? Right now, I think maybe some of you are even just sensing things, seeing things in your mind's eye, or you're reminded of things that you've longed for in the past, or maybe they're new longings. And it's like something's raising up within you, and like Joe, you're saying, that's not right, God, do something about that. And maybe now God is whispering to you, no, you do something about that. I'm calling you to do something about that. feel like there are some of you who you know you have been committing yourself to hesed in secret for years, laying down your life for others. And right now, God says, I see that. And it's like he wants to just 
bring his highlighter on that and say, I see that, I know you, and I call you Hiel. I call you a woman of might, a woman of valor. I call you a man of might, a man of valor. I see the hesed that you are embodying, and I'm going to cause everyone to know it. I'm going to cause your deeds to be known at the city gates. And today, I just feel like God says, I want you to dare to believe, to see yourself as I see you, which is as an image bearer imbued with dignity and purpose and respect. I call you Hail, and I want to call that out of you for the blessing of this city. So I pray, would the love of God infect us now and empower us to embody your love to this city for your glory in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.